Hello everyone and welcome to episode 39 of the Talking Fitball podcast with me, Derek Clark. First of all, I hope you're all well and staying safe. And despite the lack of football, I hope we can bring you a little bit of enjoyment every week with some first-class interviews. And they don't come much better than this one. I had the pleasure of chatting to Dan Abrahams, one of the game's leading psychologists, a man who's worked with some of the best players in the world. It's a fascinating insight into how vital a role psychology plays in the world of sport. It was an absolute joy to listen to Dan's story, and I'm sure you'll all agree. So sit back and enjoy this week's episode of the Talking Football Podcast. Thanks, everyone, again for listening to the, the Talking Football podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined this week by leading sports psychologist uh, Dan Abrahams. Dan, thank you very much for joining us today. It's an honour and pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, so much to talk about. I think it's it's wise to talk about what's going on at the moment. We live in some strange times um, with the coronavirus going on. How has it affected you uh, personally in, in, in your day-to-day life? Um well look i mean firstly i'm i'm uh, myself and my family are, are at the moment are safe and well so i think that that's the f- most important thing to say and i hope everybody listening out there is and 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 is, is staying safe and well so that that's that's the first thing um and most important thing um yeah look i mean it's it's challenging for us all and and i'm certainly in a position as a as a consultant um whereby you know working with uh footballers uh, globally, uh, working with football teams, um, everything's shut down at the moment. So um, it's not easy times for anybody, and it's certainly not easy times for me. Um, in terms of my business and my practice, I have uh, multiple ways that I help people. So it's not completely decimated right now, but it's uh, it, it's challenging. But um, you know, life changes sometimes, and you you you've got to go with it and see what you can do. And um, yeah, that that's where we are. So, um, and in terms of my, you know, the intricacies of my work, I do a day a week in the medical department at AFC Bournemouth. So, uh, in the Premier League there. So that's not happening right now. Um, and I have a, a range of clients, as I say, spread out the globe, and they're not playing at the moment. Now, obviously, there's always going to be some interaction, um, and people might say, "Well, this is a great time to do some." Uh, sports psychology works, mental skills work, if you if you like, and there is that element. Um, but there's 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 nothing better than players playing and getting uh, and having interaction around uh, the times that they're playing related to psychology. So it's tough. It's tough right now, Derek. But um, look, people are in a far worse position than me. So I'm counting my blessings as well. Yeah. Um... You mentioned there that the players, um, they'll be going through a lot, I'd imagine, at the moment, not necessarily just playing this, the game that they love, but in terms of thinking about their futures, a lot of clubs having to make cutbacks and what have you, so a lot of psychological issues they have to deal with at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously the players I feel for most right now are the ones who play in the lower divisions, whatever that looks like, and it, but it's still their profession. That might be League One and League Two. It might be the conference up in up in Scotland. You know, I, I dare say that's the Championship and, and League One up there, and and maybe even in the lower levels of the uh, uh, the top division there. Um, yeah, I, I think clubs are going to be making 
challenging, tough decisions. I think that, I mean, I think there was one I saw came through the other day, Birmingham City have asked players to, to take a pay cut. I think that's probably happening uh, quite a lot right now uh, without some of it being reported. Um, so um, there are sacrifices having to be made and it, it is challenging. It's not so much at the very top level where players make a lot of money, but one has to remember that's 0.0001% of footballers. <laughs> you know, it's, that's, that they're, they're the uh, exception uh, rather than the norm. Um, and so I would imagine uh, there are some players who are having to look at alternative ways to, to make a living right now. It's, it's tough for them, just as it is for the general population. And I suppose the added thing, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that footballers are in an extraordinary position or sports people in general, but they're so used to being with their mates, just as I suppose we all are used to being with our work colleagues. But there's a real team camaraderie. Uh, in football and in team sports, and when you don't have that, then 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 that can be that can be enormously challenging from a well-being and a welfare perspective. Um, being stuck at home and and not being with your teammates, so definitely um, that's something that players will be mindful of right now and having to deal with that and just missing kicking a ball around. Probably they'll be doing keepy uppies in the garden and <laughs> and one touch ball control isolated games if you like in the garden. Um uh but it's not the same is it? So uh, no. they'll, be, they'll be having to deal with that. Yeah. Um looking at, at your career then uh, Dan in terms of the sports psychology what, what what's your background and, and what made you get into that sort of line of work? Well I was um I didn't play football professionally um because the vast majority of my work is in football, um, I actually played professional golf. Um, and uh, as I always say on these podcast interviews, um, I wasn't the best professional golfer. I didn't win any money, largely because of what was going on in my head. I saw a few sports psychs myself. And when I say what was going on in my head, it was simply a case of standing on the first tee and uh, being worried about what was in front of me, thinking everybody else was better than me, not knowing how to build my confidence, deal with distraction, play with self-belief, etc., etc. Take charge of myself on the golf course, I suppose. And so um, I stopped playing, coached the game, and as I was coaching the game, um, I fell in love with the psychology of sport even more and decided I was going to go back and do uh, my qualifications to become a sports psychologist. And so 15 years ago, I put down the clubs completely, um, retired from coaching golf and uh, started up as a registered sports psychologist. Um, and I suppose I haven't looked back since. And, and I suppose golf and football would be the two predominant sports that I've worked in. I've worked in all sports with Olympians, with uh, a range of sports competitors. Um, uh, over the years, I've been lead psychologist for England golf, lead psychologist for England rugby. Uh, I was that for, for a year or so under Eddie Jones. Um, I, uh, I've, and in football, I've worked uh, over the last 15 with numerous clubs, Fulham, West Ham, QPR, Derby, I'm at Bournemouth at the moment, other clubs that I had confidentiality agreements with. I've been blessed to work with players who've played in Champions League finals, uh, uh, World Cups, etc., etc., etc. I've written four books uh, along that journey, uh, three football books, one golf book. And uh, yeah, so it's been it's been great fun. I've been uh, very, very fortunate to work in something that I'm passionate about. Yeah, you, t you touched on Eddie Jones there. He's a, he's, a, he's a fascinating character, isn't he? What's it like to be in sort of close proximity to a guy like that? Other than terrifying? 
Um, <laughs> it's, it's quite amusing because Eddie must be all of about five foot five or something, <laughs> and dealing with these guys who are I don't know six foot six, six foot seven, huge guys, and uh, they're all terrified too. <laughs> so um, no, look, it's 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 really it was a really really good fun year um, learning um, in that environment. Um, uh, so he challenges you. He challenges you to to be better. Um, I definitely, when I got that position, there was just something about that that made me go off and explore aspects that I hadn't explored before. Uh, which I suppose, upon reflection, makes me think, oh, why hadn't I done that? What am I, you know, am I 100% committed and motivated? But it's true, and you, you've got to reflect on those things. So. Um, you know, sitting in meetings with him, he, he stretches and challenges people. Um, uh, and it's it's an honor and pleasure to work with him. Um, I, I Like any coach that you work with, um, you're not always going to um, agree with everything that they do and every way that they go about things. And that there was certainly that, that feeling um, for me at the time. But 95% of me uh, certainly thinks it was a very positive experience and he's an outstanding coach. One could describe him as a world-class coach. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was reading, is it right, that you started off in terms of the psychology and non-league football? Is that correct? Then you got your break, you went to, was it Spurs? Uh, well, okay, so I, I started off in non-league football, absolutely, because uh, having having been a professional golfer and listening to sports psychologists speak about pro golf uh, or being a golfer at that time or ha- having listened to them over a decade or so, um, I, I, I just sometimes listened to them and felt, oh, you just don't know the language and I just don't know if I can trust you. Now, I'm, I'm not... Many sports psychologists would counteract that, and I agree with them by saying, "Look, you don't have the time to learn the language of every sport. You know, you don't, you you can't do that. That's not our job to know the sport inside out." And there is that, granted. And when I worked with England rugby, um, it was my first sojourn into rugby, and I didn't know the language that well. Um, so, um, and I didn't. I knew the challenges the players would face, but I didn't know the language that well. So there is that element. But I've really decided, I thought, I looked around 15 years ago and I thought, you know what, I, I, I really want to try to specialise in a, in a couple of specific sports. Golf, I knew like the back of the hand. Football, always an armchair supporter. Spurs supporter growing up, apart from a year or so supporting Wimbledon when they won the <laughs> FA Cup in 87. I don't know why I changed my allegiance Those were the days. There. Or no, in 1988, wasn't it? Um, yeah, those were the, the days. And um, I, I, I just thought I've got to learn the language of the game and I've got to learn the specific challenges that players face because every sport is different. So I went into non-league, was very blessed at the time, right next to the golf club I was assistant uh, pro at um, was a club called Fisher Athletic um, who were managed at the time they were in the sixth division which was basically the blue square south at the time in England and managed by a guy called Wayne Burnett um, who is now Spurs coach under under 21s under 23s whatever you want to call them uh, so he's done amazingly well but he was brilliant to work with really open-minded and, and it was fascinating because we we had a, a year where we had, he had signed a bunch of very young players in a division with an average age of, say, 28. We had an average age of about 21, I kid you not. So loads of players had come down from academies around England and they were playing with us. And it was brilliant. Seven of those players went back up to league football the year after. Uh, we lost in the playoffs, uh, semi-finals of the playoffs um, to get into the conference. Um, 
but we absolutely dominated the game. I mean, our, our passing, our, 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 the, our style of play was just brilliant. So that was a wonderful education. And at that time, I, I um, as so often happens in football, it's such a small industry and, and in many respects. And, you know, one of the players um, knew the, shared the agent of a, a player called Carlton Cole, who, who you'll remember. Yeah. And um, I got called in to work with Carlton. He doesn't mind me talking about this. Lots, I've lots of confidentiality agreements with players, but yes. he's fine with this. And, and obviously Carlton was languishing in the West Ham reserves at the time, having been Claudio Ranieri's lion at Chelsea. Uh, things had gone off the rails slightly. And so we worked hard together. Um, and um, 18 months later, he made his debut under Fabio Capello for England. And as things were progressing there, um, a few other players asked me at West Ham to work with them uh, and things really snowballed from there. It wasn't Spurs. It was West Ham. Um, I was there when Alan Kerbishley was there. Gianfranco Zola came in. I was working kind of as a consultant for individual players. Uh, and as I say, Derek, it just snowballed from there and, and that's the way the industry works. Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to learn the language, learn the specific challenges players face and just built from there. Yeah, you touched on Carrollton Cole there. Of course, he's incredibly talented uh, physically and what have you. But in terms of the mental side, uh, what was it you had to you had to do to sort of switch, to turn that switch on that you could believe in himself a bit more? Yeah, well, you know, he had some good people around him, or started to have some good people around him who who, who helped him a little bit off the pitch. Actually, my main job, because I think a lot of people would would imagine that my job would be to help him collect his thoughts off the pitch, but it was very much the other way around. It was very much on the pitch. And um, it's, it was really no different to what I do today, which was to help him uh, create a, a framework to his mental skills or develop a mental skills framework. And it's what I find today, and it's, it's absolutely extraordinary, Derek, and I'm, it would be, I'm sure your uh, audience will be amazed to hear this, that 99.9% .9 of the time when I sit down with a footballer and I ask them, what are you trying to achieve mentally on the pitch? just tumbleweed not a clue mm. not a clue what they're yeah. trying to achieve mentally um i don't blame them um i still think we're in our infancy on this side of things i think it's getting better but they 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 don't know and i want my clients to be able to within a few months be able to go dan i want to do a b c and this is i'm this is how i'm going to do it i want a b c and i'm going to use these mechanisms to help me help me achieve that um, and it was very much that, you know, if you spoke to Carlton at that time uh, about, again, what are you trying to achieve on the pitch? He'd, he'd bit of a blank stare and then he'll kind of go, oh, well, you know, maybe, um, maybe I'm trying to win. I want to win. I want the team to win yeah. and I want to score and I want to perform well. And, you know, what you know, almost uh, rule one, rule number one in sports psychology is start to focus on the things that you can control or as close to as close to being controllable as possible so when we strip that back um starting to help him set uh what i call a match script and what a match script is is just one to three actions that you want to execute on the pitch that are specific that are as close to controllable as possible and that are positive by positive i mean uh you're focusing on what you do want not on what you don't want so for a striker, for instance, I'm, I'm trying to recall what Carlton's script would have been. One of the plays would have been non-stop movement. Uh, another one of his plays would have been getting shots away, which isn't completely controllable, but is more controllable. Certainly non-stop movement would be 
controllable. Uh, another one, I think, was attack the six-yard area, uh, get in behind the defenders. Now, you would have thought that those are obvious things that uh, footballers would have at the forefront of their mind. Um, but honestly, really, they don't necessarily have that. And that's a big problem because they don't have real clarity of what they're trying to achieve. They're not stripping it back to the things, as I say, that are specific, that are as close to control as possible, and things that are positive. One more thing to say, um, the other thing that he tried to achieve on the pitch, and you'll probably have a little chuckle here, is that he, he, when we worked together, he came up with, I want to be an aggressive monster. I want to be aggressive monster. And this um, this is a technique I call game face. And actually, I'll reference Scottish football here and I'll reference a player I can talk about. Decade ago, I got a phone call. Can you come and work with a player called Anthony Stokes? Yeah. Stokes, he had been at uh, Arsenal, a million pound player at the age of 14. Wenger had brought him over, had got lost in the system. Uh, there and uh, had gone up to Hibernian. He'd been on loan at Fulkirk. I think he scored something like 15 goals in 16 games, demonstrated that he could play good football, be a great striker, went up to Hibernian. And again, it wasn't quite happening for him. And when I sat down with Stokesy and Stokesy and Carlton allowed me to write about uh, this in my first book, Soccer Tough, um, available on Amazon. Hint, hint. <laughs> good point, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you, mate. Um, <laughs> so um, w- when I sat down with Stokesy and again, sort of went down that line of questioning of what you, what are you trying to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the manager at the time is John Hughes. Was it, was it yeah, John, yeah, John, John Hughes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, I, I think the, the message was he's a bit static. You know, he's not, his movement can be better. You know, he's not playing at the right intensity. And believe it or not, some players struggle to play at that the intensity that's required and that intensity we call it activation in psychology um is a skill it's a skill and i think again in the industry we get this wrong people go well you've got it or you haven't got it no it's a skill so when i sat down with him and i asked him we started to strip strip it back to key words and um and he talked about one of the most powerful questions I ask players is when you're at your best, think about your best game. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And he said, I'm dominant. I'm dominant. I'm dominant as a striker, dominant runs, dominant movement, etc., etc." And something struck me. Okay. All right. All right, Stokesy. So you're dominant. When you think about being dominant, when you think about those runs and that movement and, 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 you know, losing your defenders and, and finding space, uh, is there an animal that springs to mind? And he sort of stared at me and had a little bit of a <laughs> chuckle. And, and he said, well, okay, let's go a, a, a greyhound. Because, well, and I said, well, okay, a greyhound, great. Well, what are you picturing right now when you think of being a greyhound? I know that sounds strange, but just go with it. Let's have some fun with this. And he said, well, it's, it's a nuisance. A greyhound is a nuisance. It's constantly moving and, and active and nipping at your heels and, and wants your attention. And, and I love that it's a nuisance it's active and, and so we came up with dominant greyhound and so um i think it was december 2009 stokesy became a dominant greyhound dominant greyhound dominant greyhound dominant greyhound and um that month he scored six goals and he even <laughs> scored the fastest goal at the time in spl history it was for hibernian against rangers went one nil up in 
two yeah, seconds. Yeah, I remember it, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. I was sitting there at home watching it. I think I've never celebrated the goal so much. <laughs> uh, they went on to lose 4-1, I might add. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, so so I kind of, it was like a bit of a light bulb moment. And, and, and that's where I went back to Carlton at that time. And we came up, he came up with Aggressive Monster. Again, when I'm at my Aggressive Monster. And I, part of, I started to write at that time a lot about something I called a soccer image or a football image. The image you house of yourself in your mind as a player, which influences how you feel about yourself as a player, influences the belief you have in yourself as a player. And I think at that time, and Carlton readily admitted this afterwards, he kind of, he's this big, tall, six foot two striker, strong six foot two striker, but he felt five foot two. He felt five foot two. And so he went out on the pitch and he had his match script, but he also had his game face. Stokes, he had his game face as dominant greyhound. Carlton had his game face of aggressive monster. Be aggressive monster. Be aggressive monster. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And in one game, um, uh, when he had played Chelsea, uh, after the game, John Terry said to him, who had obviously been a teammate at Chelsea, he said, boy, you've... He didn't use this term, a bit more expletive, but he said, boy, you've, you've changed. Carlton, you're a bit better now, aren't you? Because he really made it tough for him. Yeah. And um, and um, when he came on for England against Spain when he made his debut, you know, he had, yes, he had negative thoughts going onto the pitch in terms of don't mess up, don't don't make a mistake. And he's going on there, he's playing Javi and Iniesta, world champions at the time. But it was be aggressive monster, be aggressive monster, be aggressive monster, be aggressive monster. And he went out there to embody aggressive monster. And I do that now. And one of my clients has played in the Champions League final, 1st of June 2019. And his game face was relentless and dominant, relentless and dominant. And the main thing now is he didn't go out to win the Champions League or play nine out of 10. His narrative became that will take care of itself. That will take care of itself. I'm just going to be relentless and dominant, relentless and dominant. If I give the ball away, relentless and dominant. If we go a goal behind, relentless and dominant. If my cross goes into Rosette, relentless and dominant. If I miss a great chance to score, relentless and dominant. I'm going to be relentless and dominant nonstop. So it's trying to help footballers create the kind of narratives going into a game that helps them to take charge of themselves, that helps them to self-manage, that helps them to stay in the best possible mindset for 95 minutes, no matter what. Yeah, definitely. You touched on this as, as well, Dan, about feeling a great sense of pride when you see your clients um, do the business on the park. It must be quite a, quite rewarding seeing that when, when you watch it on, on the television or, or whatever. It is, it is. And, and, and I'm always keen to say that I'm, I always say to players, I'm the one to five guy. I'm the one to five guy. I'm the 1% to 5% guy. I can't help you improve by 20%. I mean, if you're helping these guys at the very top level of the game improve by 20%, then you're suddenly you're turning them into Lionel Messi. So I'm not <laughs> suggesting that for one second. I'm, I'm a small player. I, I, I'm, I'm in row Z. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, the main man here. The, the player is the most important person. The family around the player uh, and then the coaches around that player, they're the most important people. I'm in Rosette. But it is it is brilliant when you see them do well. And it's even extra special when they come back and they say, hey, look, those techniques really, really helped uh, me. Equally, the reality in life is that you also have times when it doesn't work out and you know it would be remiss of me to say that over the years I've worked with players who um, it, it hasn't quite chimed with them it, it hasn't quite worked and that's fine that happens um, I'd like 
I'd like to think, and I, I do believe so, that it happens less and less now as you become more experienced. You, you, you sit down with a player and sometimes it, it, it just, you, you hit upon techniques and it's not quite resonating with them. And then it's about, oh, can you pull it back? Can you pull it back? And can you help them to, to come up with their own best solutions? Um, so it's challenging. It's challenging and it's always gutting when it doesn't quite work out, but that's the nature of the beast. And there's always another sports psych out there who might be able to help them with the way they go about it. And that's fine. That's, that's the way the world works. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Anthony Stokes. There's another player in Scotland at the moment that sort of divides opinion. He's, he's mega talented Alfredo Morelos. He plays for Rangers. I don't know if you've, if you saw him, sometimes he's, his, his disciplinary record is, is somewhat questioned. Do, do you look at him and think I, I, I could do, I could, I could work wonders with that guy? Yeah, well, I, I, I think the first thing to say there, and I will answer your question, I think the first thing to say there is it's unethical of me to talk about specific players yeah. um, because I just don't know the what, what goes on behind the scenes. And again, another rule number one of psychology is never make assumptions. Never yeah. make assumptions. It's completely unethical. However, let's, let's answer this from a, in a broad brush way. Uh, for me, if somebody has a, a poor disciplinary record, I mean, the first thing that goes through my mind is, this person is a passionate competitor. This person wants to win. You know, I don't think any different than a supporter would think in that respect. However, what I would always say to players, to fans, to managers, to coaches is, well, what does winning look like? How do we give ourselves the best possible chance to win? And one thing I would always say is a player has to be what I call on task at all times to be in their high performance mindset. A hallmark of being in their high performance mindset is being on task, being on task, being focused, competing at the right intensity level um, and executing with positive intent. And I think that when somebody overspill, when anger spills out or overspills, when they get too emotional, my question is, are you on task? Are you giving yourself the best opportunity to play in a manner, in an activated way, in an intense way, um, but still be able to see the 360 degree view around you, still be able to anticipate quickly, still be able to make the right decisions, still be able to execute your technique? And what we pretty much know in the science of sports psychology in the science of, of performance psychology is that when that anger is is excessive or too excessive then we can tighten up damaging our capacity to execute our skills then we might well see tunnel vision that's an evolutionary process we might suffer from tunnel vision so we don't see the 360 degree view. We tighten up, we're slower to anticipate. We're making poorer decisions. So I, I, I would, how I go about helping a player like that can vary and can depend on, on, on what that player is saying, how that player feels, where, that, where the beginning of the session is. Because you, you can get a player in the room who goes, yep, got a problem here. And then you bang, you're straight in. That's beautiful. That's lovely. That's easy. But then you've got a player who goes, well, I don't think I've got a problem here. And so you might have to go into a bit of underpinning science there. Um, but I, I think players have to be on task. 
um, I think they have to be competing at the right intensity level and with positive intent. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think that that can be helped personally. But I would also add that also that the coaching staff are vital here. You, the, the problem we've had in British football is that sports psychology has been isolated for too long. Here's a player, he's got a problem, go and see the sports psych. And it's no stop. There's an element of that in terms of the sports site can and should perhaps be involved, but making sure the coaching staff are able to reinforce the messages. The coaching staff are working with the player on this. That is vital. It has to be a holistic team effort around the player. And I remember being interviewed about the, uh, um, is it Aguero, the Aguero biting incident years ago. Yeah. And, being chastised for once saying that I don't think it's a psych problem I think it's a coaching problem and I perhaps didn't articulate myself at the time well enough but what I meant was to stop Aguero from biting players actually the best thing you can do is create a situation on the pitch where he gets angry and frustrated and he wants to lash out but then help him to stop doing that so put him in that position in training help him to stop doing that give him the tools and techniques so that he just carries on. He manages it in a moment. He lessens his anger, his feelings of energy, and he carries on. So it's, it is a coaching challenge as well as a psychological challenge. Yeah, definitely. You said you're working at Bournemouth at the moment. What what does your work involved down there, Dan? Well, very much in the medical department. Um, so I primarily uh, work with injured players. Um, I, um, I'm in and around that medical department. So obviously, if players want to come and work with me from the mental side of the game in general with their performance or any welfare and well-being uh, scenarios, then um, I'm there, basically. Um, I don't do too much with the coaching staff. Um, I just predominantly work, as I say, in that medical Department. So uh, that that's how it functions down there. Yeah, and you said there you've got the you released four books. Um, you, you, you plugged one of them, but the other ones that you've wrote as well. How, how much enjoyment has that given you to, to write those in the reception for the, for those books as well? Best sellers there. Yeah, no, they've gone well in 2012 so I wanted to. I wrote this book, Soccer Tough, and I really wanted to try to bring this alive because. You know, putting more meat on the bone with your question here, I, 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 I feel historically sports psychology hasn't been done well enough for the player and the coach and maybe even the general fan just to understand it. I think perhaps if I was to, you know, graphically illustrate this along a continuum, I think on the very far right hand side, um, we're, we're way too, we can be way too theoretical. We, we can talk about terms such as systematic desensitization and inverted U hypothesis. And everyone goes, whoa, what's that? And, and the players just say, hey, I just want to score some goals and keep some clean sheets. What are you talking about? And then on the very far left-hand side, we can perhaps, the motivational gurus can sort of punch the air and shout and scream and say, we can achieve anything. And then you've got the neuro-linguistic programming experts who do a two-week course and, and say, hey, just visualize this, just picture yourself doing this, and it will come to fruition, and you'll realize it, visualize it to realize it, and it's all a bit funky and a bit fluffy. And yeah. I've just tried to hit the middle ground, whereby yeah. it's like we need evidence-based practice, if that's the term you want to use. 
use, but also we have to bring it alive for players. So rather than use terms like individual zone of optimal functioning, I'm using terms like game phase. Rather than goal achievement theory, um, I'm using terms like match script. Rather than self-regulation, I'm using a term like controller. Controller taking from the idea of PlayStation. You know, I use a controller when I play a PlayStation or Xbox. I use, I help footballers understand uh, to take charge of themselves on the pitch. They've got to use two controllers. So instead of having negative thoughts, I squash ANTS. ANTS being an acronym for automatic negative thoughts. A, automatic and negative T thoughts, squash ANTS. So I just try to bring it alive. And, um, and, and I, as I alluded to earlier, I had players like Carlton and Stokesy and various others who kindly allowed me to write uh, about their story in, uh, in the book. Uh, and so I wrote that back in 2012 and that was a, a global bestseller. I'm pleased to say very popular in the States and, uh, been translated into a few, few different languages. Um, and then I followed that up. So I wrote that for the player coaches bought it yeah. as well but I wrote that for the player to be able to read. I followed that up with Soccer Brain, which was purely for coaches about developing your coaching culture. And then I wrote Soccer Tough 2, which, as the name suggests, was a sequel to Soccer <laughs> Tough. Uh, just a bit more advanced, advanced techniques, psychological techniques. And then I went on to Golf, uh, golf Tough which was the toughest, which literally was the <laughs> toughest book to write because there is just so much literature out there on golf psychology. To yeah. try to differentiate yourself was really tough. So literally writing golf tough was very tough indeed. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment behind the scenes uh, on my membership site, um, the Dan Abraham Soccer Academy. Yeah. Um, so that's I'm doing that for my members right now. Um, so I'm enjoying that, but I'd forgotten how difficult writing books is. It really is challenging, <laughs> but enjoying it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, going back to the, the, the football again, a lot's been made now about um, the mental health of, of footballers and coming out if, uh, if they maybe feel suicidal and, and what have you. Um, it's obviously a good thing that, that more players are coming out. How important is it that they talk to people if, if they are struggling in that mental capacity? Look, I think it is a very good thing. I, I, you know, um, when I sit down uh, with, uh, with key stakeholders at a club who perhaps want me to come and work with them, I talk about sports psychology, psychological provision and support on three levels. At the top level is the, the performance psychology piece. Um, you know, everything we've spoken about there with game face and squashing yeah. ants and what have you. The middle layer is the welfare and well-being piece. Um, supporting players, coaching staff, etc., from a, a well, welfare and well-being perspective, and then underneath that, the third piece, the deepest piece, is the mental health piece, which even myself, as a sports psychologist, I would uh, have to pass on to a clinical psychologist if I if I felt that somebody was. Uh, suffering from severe depression clinical depression etc so 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 one has to keep within their boundaries so yeah. those are the three levels i talk about i think it's a great thing that now we're starting to be more open um and i think it's great that people are talking about this um you you asked me the question how important is it, is it for people to talk about it people deal with mental health in lots of different ways yeah. there's no uh, one way to deal with it so we need to be very very careful and and i want to be clear let, let, let let's I don't want this to be a controversial point, but 
it's it's great what's happening. Let's mm-hmm. be clear, not everybody is depressed out there. Clinical yeah. depression is clinical depression. Clinical depression is when you can't get out of bed. If you, you know, a lot of people, uh, the challenge at the moment are a lot of people, there's a lot of people talking about certain things that they, they don't necessarily have an understanding around definitions and classifications. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people suffer from, say, low mood. And they might say, well, I'm suffering from depression. That's not necessarily a, a depression. Some people suffer from depressive episodes, um, which, are, which isn't nice. Again, that's not clinical depression. So yeah. let's be very, very, we have to be, we're, we're, I think what I'm trying to say is we're entering into a territory where we have to be careful with how we're defining things. Maybe we're not there yet, but we have to be careful. I think it's great that people were talking that the landscape is becoming more open. It's less macho. Yeah. I think that even from a performance perspective, it's vital that players are able to um, express vulnerability because anxiety, what we know is that anxiety happens to you. Low mood happens to you. Dropping confidence happens to you. Depression happens to you. You know, you don't create these things. These things uh, emerge from your biopsychology. They happen to you. It's nobody's fault. So all of that is great. But does everybody have to talk about it? Absolutely not. There, 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 there are different ways that people deal with these things. Um, it's multidimensional, but it is certainly great that the landscape is, is, is slowly changing. I actually would like it to filter up. As I've mentioned there, I think that where, where we need to have a shift from a managerial perspective and a head coach perspective is them understanding the importance of the expression of vulnerability with relation to performance. At the moment, what happens in, say, football is that it's all about punch the air positive. We've got to be positive. We must win. And it will stop. Actually, this is a much more complex landscape. If I've got players sitting in a room, I want them to be able to have the psychological safety to say, you know what? I feel really anxious going into this game. I'm a bit nervous. And they are terrified to do that right now. Terrified. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Because there's too many, if I may say, managers and coaches who just believe that psychology is about positive thinking and it couldn't be further from the truth. So just wanted to say that it works up and down those three layers. Yeah. Touching on uh, coaches and managers these days, Dan, um, they have to be sort of psychologists as well in a way, don't they, in in the modern game? Yeah, look, and I always say to, to to managers, if given the chance, look, you're in, you're not sports psychologists per se, yeah. but you are, you do do psychology within your position, and you do psychology. Psychology is omnipresent; it's always there. They do psychology twenty four seven. Um, so absolutely, and they're in a more powerful position than me to do psychology because they're on the grass with their players. You know, they're in a more powerful position than me. And this comes back to the integration of sports psychology and psychologists within to the environment, the inter- integration into the coaching unit. I, I'm perplexed, and I've said this several times on several podcasts recently, I'm perplexed that if you've got a manager and his or her three main coaching staff, why on earth there isn't a sports psychologist within that unit? Yeah. So manager, three coaching staff and sports psych is beyond me. It belies belief, Derek. It belies belief. 
because you want somebody there who's challenging um, whatever is being spoken about, whatever is being brainstormed around the psychosocial side of things. Because psychosocial is omnipresent; it's always happening. The tech, tech, and physical sides of the game are driven psychosocially. Participation, progression, and performance in sport and football is driven psychosocially. So if you haven't got somebody there who's challenging on your methodology, your psychosocial methodologies, it, it, it belies belief. And this yeah. is why managers get sacked. This is why managers get sacked. So it, it, it's just beyond me. And if that sounds strong, well, I'm sorry. But it, it, it's just some of the decision-making out there on the psychosocial side is so naive and just hand-me-downs from, oh, this is how my coach did it. And this is how so-and-so did it. And this is how so Alex did it. This is how Brian Clough did it. Now, so Alex did it brilliantly. And Brian Clough did it brilliantly. These guys did it brilliantly. Craig Brown did it brilliantly. I'm not denying that. But they did it in the manner that suited them at that time. And it might be that they made also some mistakes for them at that time within their context. And ultimately, coaching is about you're going to make mistakes, but can we eliminate some of those mistakes? And to eliminate some of those mistakes, can we look at the, the, what the research evidence suggests out there and what the uh, experiential evidence says out there? And can we amalgamate those and can we have great conversations around those? So um, absolutely, coaches are in the most powerful position to do psychology. It winds me up. When I hear from a coach, well, Jose Mourinho is the best sports psychologist and this person is the best sports psychologist and Pep Guardian. It's like, no, because you don't want to be a sports psychologist. That's yeah. not your job to be a sports psychologist. I do things you can't do because players will have conversations with me that shouldn't even, well, you can't have and shouldn't have. Yeah. But are you in a position to be a more powerful sports, uh, a more powerful psych from a performance absolutely and you know what i want to help you and if i help you and if my colleagues my contemporary psychs help you you're going to do a damn sight better in my humble opinion yeah excellent stuff and dan finally um i know you've got your own podcast uh, yourself the, the sports psych show um how can people listen to it and what's it what, what's it all about yeah, sure. So uh, I started the Sports Psych Show about a year and a half ago um, and learned how difficult your job is, mate, as a, as a, as a journalist and a podcaster. <laughs> you know, if my stock and trade as a psychologist is listening to people, there's just something subtly different or enormously different about hosting a podcast. You know, you ask questions very effectively and um, I, uh, I, I find that challenging. So it's been a real uh, great learning curve. But it's called the Sports Psych Show, the Sports Psych Show. And look, I, I set it up um, to uh, increase, improve the landscape uh, of sports psychology, bring it to the layperson as well. Um, I, I set it up for selfish reasons because it's my own CPD, my own continuing professional development program. And I've learned so much and it's very humbling to know there's so many people out there who are so much better than me uh, at what they do. <laughs> so it's awesome. And, I, and I, 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 I guess I would say this, but I urge people to listen, even if you're not a coach and you're just a, just somebody who just loves football and loves sport and just goes out to work because everything I talk about with the coaches I interview on there, with the sports psychologists I interview on there is very relevant to life, very relevant to work. Um, so, so do listen. It's, it's the sports psych show and you can just Google it and find it that way. Um, you can pop onto my website to see my books and my blog and, and my online academy at danabrahams.com. 
Um, and I have a strong presence on Twitter at DanAbraham77, uh, Facebook uh, at DanAbrahamSoccer, Instagram at DanAbrahamSport. So I think I've, I've got in ahead of you there, just telling everybody where to find me. So I'm, I'm fairly, fairly experienced with this stuff now. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> superb. But Dan Abraham, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you and learning more about the, the sports psychology and football. Thanks very much for joining us today. No worries at all. Thank you so much, Derek. Well, that was episode 39 of the Talking Football podcast with leading sports psychologist Dan Abrahams. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, for listening. Remember, if you've missed any, you can catch them all on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, and we're also at DerekClarkSports.co.uk. Remember, we're on Twitter at Talking underscore Football and Facebook as well. I hope you can join me again next week when I'll be chatting with former Celtic Sunderland and Northern Ireland star Anton Rogan. You don't want to miss this one, but until then, bye for now.